praise the Lord. He's good, isn't he? It is a joy to know him. That does, we don't use those words lightly. It is a joy to know the Lord. Imagine your life this morning without him, what that would have felt like. Let's study God's word. Let's turn to the book of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is one of those passages where knowing the context is very important. Because the place where it is and the timing of Christ's ministry and even the location of where this takes place is very, very crucial to its understanding. Even though we celebrated the resurrection uh, a few months ago, this is uh, the day after the triumphal entry. And Jesus has gone back to Bethany for the evening. And now the next day as he's walking in the morning from Bethany to Jerusalem, um, he is maybe reflecting back on how the people praised him and how they threw their coats down and how they threw palms down. And it seemed like, even though he knew better, it seemed like for the first time they finally kind of got it, that he was the Messiah, and that maybe finally the people had, had seemed to understand. But even in the midst of shouting, you remember the picture from a few months ago, Jesus had wept when he saw Jerusalem because... He knew what was coming, and he knew what the real spiritual state of the nation was, and the rejection that he would face, and the fact that some of the same people who were waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna were going to, in just a few days, yell crucify him and give us Barabbas, and all the other things that that happened in that um, final weekend of his life. And now he's thinking, perhaps, about the Pharisees and how they and the religious leaders and the scribes had kind of stood to the side, side as the people were shouting and had that look of sourness and disdain, maybe even winking at Judas as he walked by. We don't know if they had already had, had conversations and consummated any sort of a deal, but there's just a, a great sense of spiritual polarity in the scene. The true disciples of Jesus who were kind of dumbfounded by the reception and then all the other people who were just kind of wondering who this really was or maybe just rejecting him flat out. For Jesus, there was no doubt whatsoever what was coming in the next six days. The certainty of the cross, the certainty of the affliction and pain and the stripes that he would have. And even in that moment, as he also knew the certainty of the empty tomb, as he knew that he would have victory over sin and death forever. As he could picture the millions and millions of people that would put their trust in him, he also saw the destruction of Jerusalem. And that was really just a symptom of the spiritual defiance and refusal to believe by so many, especially by Israel, but by so many others. Billions and billions of people who have rejected him and who have said no and who have looked at the cross and looked at the empty tomb and said, I refuse to believe. So he's seeing all of this in the moment. And following that, he had gone down into the temple. We see this right before our passage. Our passage starts in verse 18 this morning. But right before this, again, context is key. He's gone into the temple and he passionately drove out the people that were price gouging and that were selling animals for the people that hadn't bothered to be prepared to bring their sacrifice to the temple and their offerings to the temple. So they had to go out in the hallway and, and say, give me, a, give me a dove that I can take in there. And then they were being charged exorbitant fee and people were making profit in God's house. Can you imagine such a thing? Jesus goes in and says, no, this is not what it's going to be. This is my father's house. My father's house is a place of prayer. So you money changers, you thieves need to get out of the place. And it's a very dramatic scene, and, and, and I would say, don't take the word the way I mean it, uh, kind of a violent scene, as Jesus drives them out, and there's great passion and great righteous indignation at this point. So all of this precedes what happens here in this passage. And everything in that week, from Palm Sunday all the way up to the resurrection, is about the spiritual deficiency and the spiritual indifference of the people and it's about the the national spiritual corruption that existed so prominently which stands in such a stark contrast to the purity of christ and to the sacrifice of christ that was so necessary for the salvation of mankind 
on one side we have corruption and indifference and negligence and just the complete spiritual lack of care and lack of interest and a confusion. And then here's Christ. And he's pure and he's holy and he's sacrificial and he's humble and he's going to the cross to redeem the very people that are rejecting him. It's quite an overwhelming contrast that the people should have gotten. They should have been overwhelmed with humility and they should have widespread repentance should have been everywhere. But no one seems to get it. Not even the disciples. Disciples are still wondering what's going on. Even days later as Jesus is saying, I'm going to sacrifice and this is my blood which is given as a new covenant so you'll be redeemed. They're saying, who do you think's greater? Nobody, not one person really seems to get it. And even in this incident, the next morning with the fig tree that we're going to read in just a moment, they still don't see the spiritual correlation. Look at what happens here. Chapter 21 of the book of Matthew. Thank you for turning. And verse 18. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, speaking of Jerusalem, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? See, they still don't understand who they're dealing with. Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now the picture we get here of Jesus is very insightful. Not only because he's physically hungry, but again because of what the picture represents in the larger context. He's been in Bethany overnight, almost certainly at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, with whom he stayed every time he was in Bethany. But, but we have this picture here that he's hungry. And we, one thing we know about Martha, don't we, is that Martha never failed to prepare a good meal. She was the ultimate host, almost to the point of being a little bit crazy. Can we just say that? A little bit over the top, just everything. Martha wasn't just sitting there. She was preparing and cooking and cleaning and, and making it all nice. And Mary preferred to, to rest in the presence of the Lord. And that's a whole other message. But, but Martha, we know, had, had the good meal ready. So it, it, it's a little bit funny to, to think that Jesus would have left the house in Bethany in the morning hungry. It doesn't say in the text that he got up, you know, way before dawn. It doesn't say that he was walking to the city alone. The disciples are obviously with him. So, so it's a little odd that at this point he's hungry. But the text does say that he's hungry. It's a reminder that the Son of God was in human flesh. He experienced what we experience. And one of the things he experienced was hunger. Now, he's with others, but it, it struck me as I looked at this text, especially in verse 18, that, that you get a sense that he's alone. You ever had those times where you're with a bunch of people, but inwardly you're, you're introspective and, and you really kind of feel like, I, I've got a lot of stuff I'm dealing with, nobody really gets it, and, and I'm alone here. I, I, I just feel the sense as I read this passage that he's alone. No one's anticipating his needs. No one's ministering to him. No one has a real concept. Nobody's, nobody's relating to what should be so apparent that in five days he's going to be on a cross. Nobody sees it. And Jesus is walking alone. And, in, and even in the starkness of this picture, this lone fig tree, because no word the Holy Spirit gives us is accidental, right? Everybody say right. That it's not... He walked up to fig trees. It's not he walked up to a fig tree. It's that he walked up to a lone fig tree. The Spirit is giving us something there. He's saying, pay attention as you read that, because there's a, there's a picture there that you need to get. Christ is surrounded by people, and yet he's alone. And the Spirit really, I believe, is laying out this metaphoric image 
of the isolation that he's already experiencing. Now, it's important that we don't lose sight of that. It's important that we don't miss the impact of that because in this week that Christ is coming up to, he is going to stand alone before false charges. The disciples will not be with him. Peter will be denying him. Everybody else is taken off. He's going to stand alone to take the weight of our sins. He's going to stand alone to provide atonement for sins. He's going to stand alone to be sacrificed. It's going to be Christ alone dying in our place and Christ alone defeating sin and death. Nobody was with him because nobody was worthy to be with him. Everybody had failed him, which is just a picture of the whole Bible, the failure of man to ever meet the standard of God. So Christ stands alone as the only one worthy. And yet, while that's sad and kind of, I got a little disheartened this week just reading that and studying that to see him like this. It's also a reminder of the fact that it's only him who is sufficient to redeem us, isn't it? It's only him that can take away sin. It's only him that can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's only him that can secure us forever. Now, look at the text because that's really the point of what happens next. Throughout its history, Israel had every opportunity, every opportunity to trust in the Lord. From the time they left Egypt, actually it goes back before that, to the time God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham really doesn't quite believe it because he takes Sarah's suggestion to go to Hagar. And Sarah laughs as the angels come. She's laughing in the tent. (laughs) What are you talking about? And then they go into Egypt and they're delivered from Egypt. And there's doubt and confusion and wandering. And then they go into Canaan and God delivers that to them. But the people are unfaithful. And then they have leaders in Samuel and David, but they don't quite trust the way that they should and then they then they have a whole series of false of of kings who who bring in false gods and they follow that and the prophets are warning them no listen now turn back to the lord but they don't and then they go into captivity and nehemiah brings his group back but the people still aren't faithful and then jesus comes after 400 years of silence and john the baptist comes and says prepare the way the savior's coming messiah's here the people still don't believe Jesus does miracles, and he calls the nation to repentance, and some trust, but most don't. Throughout the ministry of Christ, it's just one thing after another, refusing to yield, always looking for an alternative, always trusting themselves. And even now, as they're amazed at Christ, there's still not deep faith. In fact, it's interesting, there are times in the New Testament and times in the Gospels where Jesus will run across somebody and he'll say, I've never found faith like yours. He's not saying it, it's faith that's, that's so remarkable. It's faith like we have. But in contrast to everything else, there was so little faith that whenever Jesus found it, he called attention to it. Look at that. Jairus, look at you. Look, woman with the issue of blood. The leper who came back and thanked him. I haven't seen faith like this. This is remarkable. So we've got this final week. And Jesus is going to the cross. And as he comes over the Mount of Olives, there's this fig tree. Look back at the text for a moment. And even that type of tree is no coincidence. Throughout Scripture, the fig tree is associated with the spiritual and physical state of Israel. Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah, they all present images of fig trees that are destroyed. And that's a picture of the, of the judgment that was coming. And then there are other passages that talk, especially in Psalms, about the fig tree providing shade and peace. And there's comfort. And, 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 it's, and it's wonderful. And he's saying, this is the time of God's hand of blessing. This is the time of God's help and God's provision. So the fact that Jesus finds this one fig tree, this, this lone fig tree that's barren of fruit, is just another insight into the disappointment that he had to feel about the spiritual barrenness of those who are called God's people. And those who said, we're God's people. And those who acted like they were God's people. But there was a disconnect between what was 
and what should have been. May that never be true of us. May that never be true of those of us who say, I'm God's child. He told me in Scripture that if I'm saved, I'm His forever, and I will rejoice for eternity that God has delivered me. If we claim that title, if we claim the name of Christ, Christian, if we say that, may there never be a disconnect between who we're supposed to be and who we really are. Because that's what was happening with Israel. And that's where the passage becomes very, very applicable to us. Especially in light of the series that we've been doing about yielding fresh spiritual fruit in our lives. What does fresh spiritual fruit mean? I realized last night I need to define that. It is the constant evidence of being like Christ. Probably the purest definition of fruit is that I'm giving constant evidence that I belong to Christ, that I'm owned by Christ, that I'm redeemed by Christ, and I'm living like Christ. That's what fruit means. So what should be the fruit in our lives? What should it look like? How should it play out? Jesus walks up to the fig tree. If you've got the picture, if you put it up. If you don't, this is a fig tree on the right. Jesus walks up to this fig tree, just kind of standing by itself. And there's every expectation that there is going to be fruit. Because everything looks right, just like the picture that we're seeing right now. Everything looks right. There are leaves. It looks healthy. Everything would tell you there is going to be fruit. All the characteristics are there. Now, some people have speculated, and I read a lot of different theories on this passage. Some people have speculated that this was not the season for figs, that there were leaves, but there was no fruit because it wasn't the season for fruit. But that's a poor theory for three reasons. The first reason is that even if it wasn't time for the fruit to be ripe, there should have at least been unripe fruit. But if you look at the text, you will see that when Jesus went to the tree, he found, tell me what? Nothing. No fruit. There was not even an unripe piece of fruit. There was no fruit whatsoever on the tree. The second problem with the theory is that fig trees are such that the fruit starts to appear before the leaves. So if there are leaves, there should be an expectation that there is fruit present. The third problem with the theory is that Jesus wouldn't have gone to the tree expecting figs if he knew that figs were out of season. The text doesn't suggest that he purposely walked up to this tree to present a spiritual lesson. The text says he was hungry. He sees the fig tree, and he walks up to the fig tree expecting what? Figs. So Jesus is not toying with the disciples at this point. He's not saying, wink, wink, watch this. I'm going to give you a spiritual lesson. I know that that tree doesn't have any fruit. Of course, as God, he did. But he walks up hungry, ready for fruit. But he doesn't find any. When Jesus sees the leaves... He sees the evidence of fruitfulness. He expected there would be figs. But when he went underneath the leaves, there was no fruit. And I want you to see, look back at the text in verse 19. I want you to see how he responds to this. His response is firm and direct. He says, the tree will never bear fruit again. Now, here's what I want you to notice that's not there. Matthew doesn't say Jesus got angry. Matthew doesn't say he raised his voice. Matthew doesn't say he grabbed the trunk and shook it and said, you cursed tree. Matthew doesn't give the sense that, that he even uh, gets really uptight about it. The text just says that Matthew said, you'll never bear fruit again. Now, just the day before, we saw a different picture, didn't we? We saw Jesus angry. We saw Jesus walking through the temple. We saw him condemning those that were, that were corrupting the house of God. We see a lot of different emotions in the passage right before it. But when it gets to the fig tree, Jesus says in a very even voice, you will never bear fruit again. And I think, really, from reading this, that even though Jesus is condemning the tree, 
he, he has the same demeanor that he had as he was entering into Jerusalem the day before. I think there's a sadness, an overwhelming, I don't know the, any other word than sadness, that there's barrenness and there's fruitlessness and the reality that those who are supposed to be his people are not really his people. Now look at what happens to the tree, and then let's draw some spiritual applications this morning. As soon as Jesus speaks to the tree and pronounces that it will never be fruitful again, what happens to the tree? Tell me loudly. It withers. You know what withers mean? It means it dries up. It means it has no water. It means the life is just sucked out of it. As soon as Jesus says, you're never going to bear fruit again, the tree withers. Notice that what he said didn't make the tree fruitless. The tree was already fruitless. He's just confirming the character of the tree. It's already compromised. It's already corrupted. It's already contrary to what it should have been. And again, this is an indictment of the religious established, especially, which was so arrogant and so sure of itself, and it twisted the word of God and confused the people. It's interesting because this is the only miracle that Jesus does that doesn't help somebody. It doesn't heal. It doesn't promote life. It, it doesn't do anything that restores. This is the one that carries judgment. Now, God, we know, we just sang, is a God of grace and of mercy and of love. Everybody say amen. But God is also a God who judges sin. He will forgive us of sin. He promises to do that. He secured that on the cross and at the empty tomb. He says, if you confess your sins, I will be faithful. I will not fail you. I will forgive them and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But if you stay in sin, there's a consequence. And this shows that he did many miracles that healed and restored and brought life to people. But this one time, right before the cross, he says, if you don't receive me, there's judgment. This tree loses its spiritual life. Now, this is an unmistakable, unquestionable spiritual principle that comes out of the five verses. If there are leaves, there needs to be good fruit under the leaves. Let me put it a different way. If we say that we love him and we say that we have fruit and we act like we have fruit, then there better be obvious, tangible fruit in our lives. Because otherwise, we're lying hypocrites. If I claim the name of Christ and I say, as a child of Christ, I have fruit. And if I act like there's fruit, and I present myself as having fruit, then there better be fruit. Because mature plants have fruit. Julie and I worked in our garden to celebrate our anniversary. And I saw this principle in the difference between the raspberry bushes and the strawberry plants. A couple, about five years ago when we moved in, we went to wherever, Home Depot, and bought you know the $6.99 raspberry bushes that are this high. That's not a plug for Home Depot. It's just where we went, okay? So, you know, everybody nod. You know, the, the raspberry bushes you buy, $6.99. Now they're like $8.99. Good old inflation. And we had a little berm on the back of our yard, and we planted those two bushes, and they looked just out there, just little twigs sticking up five years ago. Now they occupy a space about eight feet by four feet, and they're about five feet tall. It's going nuts. I think it's doubled since last year. I'm so excited for raspberries. And I'm not going to dry them either. Thank you for my raisins that I got from the Rubens and kids. Now, I've got these, these big raspberry bushes that are just huge. And then a couple years ago, we planted two small strawberry plants. They fill a space about, I don't know, four by four. They're only about a foot tall. Now, right now, if you saw those raspberry bushes... Everything about their appearance says health and maturity. They're huge and they're expansive. And if you walk out there, you would expect to see bushes that are full of ripe red fruit. 
But I looked at it on Friday, and all I see right now are leaves and blossoms. There's not a single raspberry on that bush. And yet, when I walk over to the strawberry bushes, they don't look like much. They're just yay high off the ground. They're not really all that attractive. But if you squat down low and you go underneath the leaves, because the best fruit's not right on top, right? It's underneath there. You go under there and you find ripe red strawberries. I filled about a half a bowl about that high full of strawberries. Julie was picking them off the vine and eating them. She said, oh, it's incredible. Now that's the principle of the fig tree. That no matter how much we may look fruitful and act fruitful and seem to be others, seem to others to be fruitful, if there's no fruit under the leaves, we're not pleasing the Lord and we're really of no use to him. The core of that truth goes, truth goes all the way back to the time of King Saul. When the people said, oh, we want a king. Let's find the best looking, most popular, tallest, strongest guy. He'll be a great leader. And God says, uh-uh, he's a wrong leader because you look on the outward appearance, but I'm looking inside. And when I look inside, I don't see what I need. Doesn't matter how we present ourselves as believers. It's what is in the heart that counts. There is no artificial fruit in the kingdom of God. Artificial fruit looks great from a distance, but when you get up close, you say, that's not the real thing. That's a fake apple. It's got lacquer on it. That's not going to satisfy anybody, right? God doesn't want a copy of what's real. He wants real fruit. And when there are only leaves and there's no fruit, it means that there's an abundant knowledge of what's good and what's right, even to the extent that we say the right things and do good works, even with some degree of sincerity. But those are works of the flesh and not of the spirit. They're done to satisfy our conscience and to show that we're trying to satisfy the Lord. I believe there's a lot of that in the church. I believe there's a lot of that, especially in the American church. But it is not real fruit. And the Lord looks at it like he looks at the fig tree and he says, no, that's not it. You know, there are four things. You may want to write these down just to break up the monotony of me talking. There, there are four things that we tend to believe that will produce fresh, spiritually healthy fruit. There are four rationalizations that we make, but each of them is a fraud. And they quickly become plastic fruit if our hearts are not completely yielded to the Lord and our motives are to please ourselves instead of pleasing the Lord. Listen, this is very, very, very subtle. And I've even struggled as I've been studying of, of how do I explain this. Now, I absolutely believe, and you need to hear this, I absolutely believe that the Spirit's intent, this, uh, excuse me, that the enemy's intent this morning is to confuse us. And I believe that the enemy's intent right now, he's working on us in our pride, is to get offended, listen now, to get offended in our pride rather than being open to the Spirit's conviction. That became completely clear to me last night when, when I saw how much warfare was going on all around us. There was a reason why the enemy does not want us studying this this morning. And this was profound. I thought maybe it was just me. As I'm studying last night and I'm typing, my computer seven times shut off. Seven times I had to reboot and I lost files and I'm losing what I'm typing as I'm studying. And, and, and eventually I got kind of smart, I guess, and I took cell phone pictures of my screen so when I rebooted, I could retype. I'm sending text messages. to me. It was crazy. And then Julie's finding that that teachers that we have for the children's area are all getting sick. And then Randy writes me about 11.30, and he says, there's something going on here. Because Michelle, who sang the solo, her husband's at the ER, and, and so-and-so's sick, and so-and-so's sick, and so-and-so, all choir members. And we debated over email at quarter to 12, do we do the choir song? Do we have enough people? I and mean, this is what's going on. But it was obvious to us. This is warfare. There's a reason why the enemy doesn't want this. So here's what needs to happen. As we go through this next section, we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. And I'm going to pray in just a minute. And this is not the end of the message. Don't leave after this, okay? 
But I'm going to pray because before we deal with what we're going to deal with next, we need to ask the Spirit of God to humble us. And we need to ask the Spirit of God to open our hearts and make us sensitive that this will be areas of conviction and change, or in the positive, that there'll be areas of encouragement and fresh kind of fertilization of our spirit. But God wants to challenge us on this, so let's pray. Lord, we ask you right now, defeat the enemy who wants to blind our minds and plug our ears and plug our hearts from what you need to tell us now. Lord, this is going to be a challenge. We ask you to cleanse and purify us. We ask you to speak to us right now, to not have ears that are hardened and to not have ears that want to be tickled, but ears that hear your truth. So, Lord, through your spirit, speak this word. Push me aside. Get me out of the way. There should be nothing of me in this. Speak to us, challenge us, convict us, and encourage us as we seek to bear fruit for your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first in the list of things that will not automatically produce fruit. In other words, there are four things that we think sometimes, if I just do this, fruit will be abundant. The first thing that does not automatically produce fruit is rituals. Rituals. Now listen very closely here. Simply practicing the spiritual disciplines while absolutely important in our lives, but simply practicing the spiritual disciplines does not guarantee that you are going to mature as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Just going through the motions or reading a devotional book or grabbing 15 minutes of study or lobbing a few prayer requests to the Lord or even going to church doesn't ensure that your heart is going to be soft toward the Lord. It doesn't ensure that your will is going to be submitted to Him. Absolutely it helps, but it doesn't ensure it. I know people who would put us to shame with the diligence of their disciplines. But when you talk to them about trusting in the Lord, they get uncomfortable because they love to worry and they love to live in self-pity. And I don't know how you can justify those two things together. Our belief can't just be intellectual without a sense of deep dependence, without the Holy Spirit being the living Lord of our lives. So many people get uncomfortable when we say the Holy Spirit because they say, oh, this is kind of mystical weirdness going on. No, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. If you love Christ, you love the Spirit. If you follow Christ, you follow the Spirit. But so many people are so ordered in the way they do it, and there's little openness to what the Spirit wants to do. Now, I'm not talking against order. I'm saying order cannot be the rule of life because sometimes the Spirit wants to change direction. I mean, how many of us know that loving the Lord is not sterile and unexciting? It's not. There's no way. God didn't send Christ to die and rise again, and He didn't give us His Spirit so we'd be boring people. Living by the Spirit means living by the Spirit. I'm not talking craziness. I'm talking about a living and active faith in the Lord. This is about spending time with the Lord, not because it's your ritual, not because it's the check mark on the calendar, but because you love Him and you want to hear from Him and you want to hear about Him and you want to be taught by Him and your heart is open, and you're saying, Lord, I want to be like you. That's why we spend time with the Lord. Obedience doesn't come from ritual. Listen, that's what they tried to do in the Old Testament. And did it work? No. The Pharisees were obedient. Paul even says, hey, nobody, nobody can match my record. I was the top Pharisee, everybody looked at me and admired me. But here was the problem, Philippians 3. It didn't come from my heart. Obedience is not a ritual. 
It's a conviction. Prayer isn't a repetition. It's not a chant. It's not boring. It's not saying 20 of these so you can satisfy something. It is the privilege of entering the presence of God and going to his throne of grace boldly and letting our requests be made known. Any religion that emphasizes ritual over relationship is unworthy of the Lord. So fruit doesn't come from ritual. Second, fruit doesn't come from intentions. We've all heard the quote that hell is paved with good intentions. One writer even added that hell is walled and roofed with good intentions too. Gandhi said that before the throne of the Almighty, man will be judged not by his acts, but by his intentions. And while that sounds incredibly profound, Gandhi was wrong. Sometimes we have the best of intentions and we don't carry them through. I had a palm plant in my office. I liked the palm plant. It gave some green in my office, and I intended to keep it healthy. But when, when I wasn't in my office during VBS, I didn't water it, and guess what happened? It died. I didn't intend for it to die. I liked the plant. I wanted the plant, but I failed the plant. I have every intention to eat jalapenos and tomatoes and okra that we planted on Friday that we spent money on and prepared the garden all day. I have absolutely every intention of harvesting those vegetables. But if we get busy and we don't water them and we allow the weeds to choke them, it doesn't matter how good our intentions are. We're not getting fruit off those plants. Margaret Thatcher had it right when she said, no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. Fresh fruit is not produced by meaning to live right. It is produced by years of consistent, patient cultivation and labor. And you know what? That's not flashy, but it pleases the Lord. Let's stop worrying about flashy. Let's stop worrying about looking right, and let's start living right. It's not intentions. I, I tried. God says, okay, that's fine. Your, your heart maybe was good, but where's the fruit? Because I'm walking up to the tree, and there are a lot of leaves, but I don't find any figs. Third, fruit is not produced by planting in unhealthy soil. Fruit is not produced by planting in unhealthy soil. How can we have any expectation of showing evidence of spiritual health and maturity if we are consistently corrupting our hearts with what is impure or what is biblically questionable? No gardener in their right mind grabs a mix of toxic chemicals and pours them on growing plants. You have to buy the fertilizer that some chemist in Ohio has researched that all the chemicals and all the nutrients are right together and they're all perfectly balanced to produce growth. You don't just take a bottle of lye or a bottle of something and pour it on the plant and say, grow. And yet, how often do we mix what is spiritually toxic and what is contaminated and then say, Lord, why aren't you blessing me? There can be a world of justifications of why we allow it, but there is no way that God will honor what is unholy in our lives, and there is no way he will be present among it. If you want proof of that, look back in the Old Testament and see how the high priest prepared to go into the Holy of Holies. Days of cleansing, days of purification, just to enter into God's presence. Now, it's easy for us because Hebrews says, just go to the throne of grace. Christ opened it up. But listen, don't take that for granted that God's any less holy. We cannot dare to say, well, I'll bring all kinds of impurity and I'll go and I'll make a request known and God will honor that and bless that impurity in my life. He's not looking for our rationalization of what we can allow. He is looking for a diligent love that is worthy of his name. And we've got to stop, and forgive me, I'm not, not being critical, I'm just making an observation. We've got to stop saying, well, I can do this and this, and I think there's some latitude there. Just ask yourself, 
Is this worthy of the name of Jesus Christ? Is this worthy of what he did on the cross? Fourth, fresh fruit doesn't come from plants that are neglected and surrounded by weeds. Fresh fruit doesn't come from plants that are neglected and surrounded by weeds. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13 and Mark 5 and Luke 8, the parable of the seed. He says, the thorns will choke the plant and they'll stifle growth. This represents the person who's consumed by the cares of the world. Jesus defined the cares of the world in two ways. He says it's the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of the world, both of which prevent fruitfulness. Now, what does that mean? Worry is not just anxiety and fear, though that's a big one. Worry is the attempt to please the world, to be concerned about keeping up, to be preoccupied with how people view us, to be obsessed with achieving certain status and wealth so we're viewed in a certain way. In other words, it's a preoccupation of the heart and mind with what is contrary to be preoccupied being like Christ. Jesus said, this is a thorn, this is a weed that chokes you, that prevents the fruitfulness. It's worry. Not just, oh, what's going to happen? I can't trust God. That's a big one. But it's also, I'm so obsessed with everything and I'm worried about everything being right and, and people seeing me and gaining status and, and having this and having that. And God says, uh-uh, that's choking fruitfulness. That's preventing you from being like me. And then he says it's the deceitfulness of the world. We all know how deceitful the world is, but I think we chronically underestimate the extent of its influence. I think we underestimate how insidious the world is about getting into our heart and our desires and our priorities. The more the world has of us, the less our yield of spiritual fruit will be. It is an unmistakable connection. So Jesus says, don't get choked. Don't allow the weeds to take over. I guarantee you we've done everything right with that garden. But if we don't do anything for two months and we don't go out and weed, and I hate weeding, I hate weeding. But if we don't weed, that thing's going to get overrun. We've put down the fabric. We've cut it out. We put all the fertilizer. We put the right thing. Everything's set. Looks great right now. But in the middle of August, if we don't touch it, forget it. Now, this is why, let's conclude. This is why Jesus talks in verses 21 and 22 about the power of faith. This is faith that knows the awesomeness of God. This is faith that, can, that, that God can radically change lives, that God can put a new nature in us that causes us to live for the Lord and love the things of the Lord in ways that we never could have imagined. This is the faith that nothing is impossible with God. That he's the one who shaped the mountains with his hands. He's the one who can make a fig tree wither just by his words. That kind of faith is not dry and routine. That kind of faith is not the kind that wants to trust, but it just can't rely on the Lord to be faithful. It's not the kind of faith that's influenced by people who don't know the Lord, and don't love the Lord, but we want to be like them, and we want them to affirm us and love us, so, so we're going to do what they do. That's loving yourself. It's not the kind of faith that is convenient. It is the kind of faith that knows the unlimited power of God and trusts in the Lord to be sufficient in ways that are too far beyond our comprehension but even though that's hard, and even though faith is picturing what we can't see yet, there is a tremendous peace about it. It's a faith that believes that nothing is too hard for our Lord. I remember when I was in high school on a basketball trip in the North Carolina mountains. I stayed up one night with a couple of my friends. We were about 16 or 17. And we were sitting at this awful, awful, awful little hotel that the reason we sat outside is we didn't want to be inside. 
And we sat out on some rickety old chairs, and we were along a highway, and there are mountains right here. I don't know how it got started. But we started to talk about this passage. Was Jesus being literal? Is there faith that is such that you could tell a mountain to move and it would shift on the earth? I mean, it was a fascinating conversation for 16-year-olds. And most people will say, no, this passage is figurative. He's talking about the Pharisees who were known as mountain movers and and they had had such diligence that they could remove difficult obstacles and, and he's talking about that figuratively that if you have obstacles and difficulties in your life, that God can move them. How many know that's true? Of course that's true, right? But I don't know. There's something in me that thinks this is more. There's something in me that says maybe Jesus is being figurative and literal. Now, don't lose me. I'm not crazy, I promise. I'm older, but I'm not crazy. You say, well, Paul, come on, that's impossible. Mountains don't just believe, move because we believe they will. And besides, how could we trust that deeply? Listen, don't dismiss the concept. Look at the text. It says, if you have faith and do not doubt. See, any shred of doubt inherently kills pure faith. The moment we say in our mind, mm, I'm not sure that's possible, we don't have pure faith. Jesus says, if you believe, the mountains will move. I don't know if it's being literal, but I want to believe it's literal. This is what Jesus said. Now, don't miss the overall point. I'm done. Faith is the catalyst to spiritual fruit. It is what keeps our heart focused and pure, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If we don't trust him, listen now, if we don't trust him, how can we say we love him? And if we don't love him, how can we be like him? And if we are not like him, how can we bear any fruit? If you don't trust him, You don't really love him. If you don't really love him, you're not going to be like him. And if you're not like him, you're not going to bear any fruit. We'll look like that single fig tree that Jesus walks up to and he's expecting a nice, black, juicy fig. There's nothing here. The Lord is looking for people who love him. The Lord is looking for people who bear abundant fruit because of that love. And my question is, how full is your tree this morning? How abundant is the fruit in your life? Let's pray together. Just while your heads are bowed, let me just speak to you for a moment. You've listened very, very well, and I pray the Lord has really spoken to us now. That these are questions that we don't want to just pass by and say good morning and go on with the rest of the day. These are serious Questions. Remember, we prayed in the middle asking the Lord to convict us and teach us and challenge us and encourage us. So I pray that's what he's done. We're not in any hurry. We've got nowhere to be. What's the Lord saying to you this morning? How abundant is the fruit, really? Any of us can fake the appearance. Any of us can speak the right language. Any of us can fall back into the things that we think will be enough. I don't know, maybe, maybe the fruit on our trees is abundant. We can just thank the Lord and go home. But I know there's areas of deficiency in my own life. I'm guessing there are in your life too.
not going to be through rituals. It's not going to be through intentions. It's just going to be by loving the Lord. And I mean loving Him. Not lip service. Not attempts. True love. Sacrifice. Commitment. Trust. There's no greater expression of love for the Lord than trusting Him. Is your faith bold and confident? Do you get excited when you hear Mount Move? I don't know what the Lord's saying to your life this morning. I'm still trying to discern all that He's saying to mine. But I want to encourage you just in the next 60 to 90 seconds. Go before Him. Be honest with Him. Confess lack of fruit. Ask Him to bring fresh growth into your life. Lord, you're so wonderful and you're so good and you're so faithful. Father, I pray it would never be true of any of our lives, never be true of this church that you would look at it and say, where's the fruit? I'm I'm looking for it, I just don't see it. We want to be abundant for your name. We would be abundant for the ministry of the gospel. We want to be abundant as a witness of how you have changed us. And we want to be abundant because we love you. Lord, we love you this morning. We love you. How could we do anything less because you first loved us and you proved that love in ways that we cannot fathom and yet we believe. May our lives, Father, pour out with the evidence of that love Father, may you get the praise and the glory and the honor and the adoration. We do adore you this morning. We bring all praise and adoration to you because you are the one that's changed us. And you are the one that continues to refine us and make us like Christ. Lord, may we see advancement and progress and maturity in the days ahead. We thank you and praise you for what you've done and what you're about to do. And we love you in Jesus' name.